I'm going to read this morning's passage uh, and then um, share a little bit about that. Uh, this is John chapter 3, verses 22 to the second verse of chapter 4. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time there uh, with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. He has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true. For he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but will... <clears throat> sorry. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Uh, as a comment was made uh, by Tina before the service, there isn't much material on this passage. This is very much a transitional passage. Uh, the title of my sermon today is More of Jesus and Less of Me. Uh, that actually references some of you who are of a certain gender and a certain age may remember that in the 1970s there was a diet book with that title where a uh, woman of a certain gender... Uh, uh, detailed her um, mostly unsuccessful, sometimes successful uh, pilgrimage with yo-yo dieting. But that's not the topic of today's message. It has nothing to do with dieting. Uh, but we do have to take notice of the context of the passage. The key verse... Uh, which gives rise to our message this morning, is actually verse 30 of chapter 3. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John, John is the uh, cousin of Jesus, and um, it, was, it was John's role in life. It was his mission, his call, to introduce Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Messiah. 
John himself said, I am not the Messiah, I'm not the promised one. He was the herald who announced the launch of the public ministry of the promised one. And while it's John who first captures the public attention, his role is to lift Jesus to a greater position than his. Relevance to us for our discipleship is John's principle. He must become greater and greater, and we must become less and less. So I just want to address, I hesitate to say briefly, um, what does it mean for us to see more of Jesus and less of us in our Christian life and in our discipleship? And I want to suggest that here's what it means. Firstly, it means in our day-to-day life as followers of Jesus, we need to focus more on Jesus want, on what Jesus wants for us than on what we want out of life. Because we are not alive for our sake. We are alive for His sake. And so it's a matter of focus. Jesus can't become more and more in our lives and us less and less if we are focused on ourselves and focused on what we want, our ambitions, our needs, our rights, our entitlements, our expectations. So it does really become a rather practical thing of focusing day to day, not on what I want, but on what Jesus wants for me because I belong to him. I'm a love slave of him. I'm a brother, an adopted brother, family member of him. It means more focus on Jesus' reputation as seen in my life than my reputation. And I don't want to use that, that, that statement as a slam, because quite often we are hit with this accusation that people who don't know Jesus, all they know of Jesus is what they know about us. And that's usually said in a very accusing way, in a very condemning way, like you're not a good enough example. And every little flaw or little thing you do wrong is magnified, and that's the reason people are put off becoming Christian because you're not showing a good enough example. I don't want to do that. But I do want to say that for Jesus to become more and more evident in our lives and our fallenness to become less and less evident, we need to focus on his reputation rather than ours. We need to focus on his character rather than ours, his wisdom rather than ours, his love for people who don't deserve it rather than our rather selective love. And perhaps we need to focus more on what we owe Jesus rather than what we think we deserve. I often characterize the Christian life as a life of gratitude. There are, there are several different um, big themes in, in a Christian life. One very famous 
Christian pastor, teacher, theologian, author, happened to live in Geneva a few hundred years ago, characterized the Christian life as a life of repentance. Because every day we wake up, we are faced with the reality that only Christ and God is perfect, and we are not. And while we may, all of us who have become followers of Jesus, have repented once, he insisted that the Christian life is a life of daily repentance. Then sometimes the emphasis is on forgiveness. You see, we are a people who are forgiven. And actually, one of the big Bible words, one of the other big Bible words about the effect of the cross in us is redemption. We've actually been bought with a price. We've been freed from a form of slavery. Now, many of us know what it's like to be slaves to a substance. Many of us know what it's like to be slaves to a broken system within our families or our friendships. Many of us know what it's like to be hopelessly, helplessly, continually making the wrong choices in spite of wishing we could occasionally make the right choices. Many of us feel very deeply that in the past we were genuinely slaves to something else. The kind of cruelest slavery. And the great contrast in becoming a Christian is we are freed by redemption. We are bought with the price of the death and resurrection of Christ out of that kind of slavery. And we come into a new relationship, and some people characterize it as we're under a new slavery. We're certainly under a new sovereignty. We're under a new leadership. But you see, we don't follow, when Jesus comes into our lives, we don't follow him because we have to. We follow him because we want to. And I'm, because of my background, very conscious that every day is a day of gratitude. And I think gratitude is the most powerful motivator to obedience, to following him. Even though that following is a following to death. Because of one of these great paradoxes in Christian life, we are given new life, eternal life, and yet it involves a dying, a theological, symbolic, biblical dying, as well as the fact, yes, we are all going to die, but those who die in Christ have eternal life. Jesus himself said, if anybody wants to follow me, they need to take up their cross and die daily. See, Jesus physically carried a cross. The people who carried crosses were dead men walking. They were on their way to execution. And what Jesus calls us to do is to give up all of our own ambitions and be willing to die with him because that's the way to live forever. So it's more about him and less about us because our ambitions, 
our expectations, our desires, apart from the fact that so often they're misguided, is they're, they're trivial compared with what we are offered by being followers of Jesus. And being Christians is not about being given everything that we want by an indulgent parent. It's not about focusing on what we deserve. It's focusing on what we owe. And the fact that we can never repay and therefore shouldn't try to repay. Because the gospel is not about trying to pay Jesus back for what he did for us. Paul's very clear about that. That the essence of the gospel is it's accepting his sacrifice on our behalf. There is no way we can pay it back. And anybody who thinks that we, they can contribute to their salvation by doing something in addition to what Christ has done undoes the very foundations of the gospel. Paul explains that in Galatians. So what does it mean for our Christian lives, our Christian experience, our Christian stories to be more of Jesus and less of us? Let's focus on more on what Jesus wants than what I want. Let's focus on Jesus' reputation, not ours. We need to be willing to sacrifice our reputations. After all, Jesus did that for us. There was a direct link in Jesus between his humility and his humiliation because he was humiliated by being executed on the cross. The only innocent man in history was executed as a common criminal. And his words were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So how do we do this? How do we allow Jesus to be greater and greater in our lives and we become less and less? My first thought when I thought about this was remembering the impact. This was before I became a Christian. When somebody challenged me to read the stories of Jesus in what was the living New Testament. And, it just, and the point of that was just in common garden English. So it was what I was reading that made the impact, not the funny language. Because as a kid I had tried to read the King James Version and it didn't matter where I opened it, it all sounded the same. And it was totally obscured, the ancient language totally obscured what the language was trying to convey. But I remember reading, and I was just blown away by the character of Jesus as portrayed in the Scriptures. He was amazing. He was just amazing. Because he was so loving and accepting of people who didn't deserve it. Well, nobody does, but... But at the same time, the way he could stand up to the, to the leaders who were opposing him, the way he never got caught in their tricky questions, he was always able to turn it around. I was just so impressed with the character of Jesus. Now you may think, what's that got to do with more of Jesus and less of me? Well, I think the more we just remind ourselves through, and it doesn't have to be reading, hey, all of my, all, if you've got 
the, the Bible on your phone, you version on your phone, you can just click listen. You can just listen to it. And then there's Jesus' teaching. I remember reading the stuff that Jesus said. And, and I just distinctly remember once, I don't know what passage, but saying, gosh, I didn't know Jesus said that. And man, that's so smart. If we want to know the, the helpful stuff to do, and we, by the way, we need to be reminded, this is my, you know, I used to teach ethics. And my number one statement is, what God says is good, is good for us. You see, there's an absolute mathematical direct link between what God commands us to do or not do and whether we benefit or suffer. Living according to the teachings of Jesus is the only way to benefit. Living contrary is surely going the, wrong way, the other way. And then in these stories, how Jesus treated people he met. The scriptures so often say he had compassion on somebody. He loved somebody. Scriptures say Jesus wept. He got angry at death when he was called to Lazarus' tomb. He loved people like, like really loved people. And so my point is, I just urge us, whether it's reading, whether it's watching, whether it's listening to the Scriptures, the, the, the stories of Jesus. Now, I'm not one of those who wants to create a division between the Gospels and the writings of Paul, because Paul explained the significance in every aspect of life, the Gospel, totally consistently with Jesus. And I love Paul's theology and, and his explanation of the Gospel, but there's nothing like focusing on the character and the teaching, and the wisdom, and the relationships that Jesus had in order to be inspired. You know, Paul made the outrageous claim. He encouraged some readers, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. You know, we do tend to imitate people whom we admire. Sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. I can remember very early on in my Christian life when I was in this accidental Bible study that started in the Manawatu and I was pouring out my primitive, young, youthful, semi-understanding of the Scriptures. And then a week or two later, I actually played, it might have been a cassette, Anybody know what a cassette? Remember, I played a cassette tape of the pastor who had had the greatest influence on me in the first year of my Christian life, teaching a Bible study. And we all listened to that 
And then almost to a person in the room, they said, you teach just like him. And I had never, ever thought about that, never noticed it. You see, we imitate people we admire, but to admire people, we have to know about them. We have to know what they're like in public, in private, in all sorts of circumstances. And the Gospels just give this multifaceted portrait of the only perfect human being there ever was. Honestly, I want to get away from the idea that reading the Bible is an obligation. Watch the Jesus movie. Listen on your phone. Read if you have to. Except read in something where you won't be conscious of the language, but you'll be conscious of what the language says. And then, as I've just been alluding to, seek to imitate Jesus. Love somebody who doesn't deserve it. Love somebody who won't necessarily even recognize it or certainly may not respond. Love them anyway. Get your courage going all in the same direction and stand up to somebody sometimes. Don't be sucked in by tricky questions. Take notice of how Jesus turned it around. So, you know, the, the Jewish leaders come with a coin. And the coin has the, the, the image of Caesar on it. And they try and trick him. You know, okay, so should we pay our taxes or not? Because, you see, they want to get Jesus offside with the Roman rulers so they can ch- dob him in and get rid of him under Roman law because they didn't have the, the authority. Jesus recognized that trick half a mile away. So he says, you know, well, whose who's image is on this? Well, that's Caesar's. Well, he says, give to Caesar's what Caesar's, but give to God's what God's, what's God's. So yeah, pay your taxes. That's superficial Caesar business. More of Jesus, less of us. Jesus wants all the rest because he wants us in our entirety, in our entirety, and unconditionally. Let's strive to live more and more in the presence of Jesus. I've referred, I've referred several times before to the very old Christian classic book about Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God. But it's not that difficult. It's just something we need to remind ourselves. That we are always in the presence of Christ. So let's live there. You know, there's a great current theme in many aspects of society now on mindfulness, and it sounds really good. There is a good version of it, and there is a not-so-good version of it, because the mindfulness that is being purveyed in our society actually owes itself more to Eastern mysticism and Buddhism than it does to Judeo-Christian worship or meditation. But it's not hard to just be conscious moment by moment, hour by hour, day to day, even if we get reminded, hey, Lord, you're here, I'm with you. And not just when we're on our best behavior, even in the bad times. Practice living in the presence of Jesus, I tell you, you, he will be more important and you will be less the moment we do that. And then I want us to think about 
reframing, rewriting our stories. We've, we've heard this emphasis on, on placing ourselves personally within the big story of the gospel. And it's necessary to do that. What we need to be careful about is that we do it in a way that it is more about Jesus than about us. And about what he has done for us, is doing, and will do. It's not all about me and my past or even my present failings. One thing I can, I can remember also about my early Christian experience. Uh, people, lots of people were encouraged to give their testimonies. And lots of people came out of the... Because you know that I was... I was converted in the midst of the Jesus movement in California at the end of 1970. Incidentally, just saw the film The Jesus Revolution on the plane. Had to pay 10 bucks. I'm feeling really ripped off because Judy got to watch it for free and neither of us know how. But anyway. <laughs> and I'd have, I'd have to say I'm a little bit underwhelmed. But yeah, it, it, it brought back some memories. But lots of people were giving their testimonies. And... A bit of a, it's a, a bit of a, 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 an exaggeration, but it was, yeah, I was really into drugs, man. Yeah, and it was free love in Hate Ashbury. And yeah, it was all about booze and drugs and sex. And then I became a Christian. <laughs> but that's not what it's really like. In our story, we've got to put the emphasis in the right place. And it doesn't matter how uneventful or eventful our pre-Christian lives have been. The emphasis is on what Jesus has done. There's a couple of images I wanted to talk about here. One is because the emphasis is on remembering that verse in the Old Testament. Yes, because you see, every generation of the people of God was called to tell their children how they got here that the great enemy of faithfulness to God among the people of God was forgetting what God had done. And there is always an emphasis on remembering. However, my image of it, not to undo that or diminish that, is remembering what God has done, where we've come from, is like looking in the rear view mirror of the car. Now, drive, is, it, is there anybody who's ever done any driving instruction? And I don't mean my, me, me trying to teach Alana a few years ago. Good driving involves always looking in the rearview mirror. I've just been taught to drive a bus that's about as big as a city block. You know, it's the most intimidating thing I've ever had to do. And the thing that they, they just emphasize all the time is you're always looking. Well, you're, you're having to do lots of things at once. Because looking ahead is called search and scan. But you're always looking in the rearview mirrors. But what does the re looking in the rearview mirror tell you? It's where have you been. It's where you've come from. And where you've been and where you've come from is always receding into the past. Because where you've come from is no longer as important as where you're going. 
We need to remember who we are, where we've come from, what we are really like, whether or not we've had an eventful or an uneventful pre-Christian life. But where we've come from does not define us. What defines us is what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, I am confident that he who has begun a good work in you, he will complete it. And therefore, we, the greater focus needs to be on looking forward rather than backwards. We do both. I'm not only a fan of motor racing, I'm also a fan of athletics. And the World Athletic Championships are on in Budapest at the moment, and we've been watching on TV. Two incredible images are very real to me right now. The sprints, the 100 and 200 meters. In sprinting, you are told from the moment the gun goes off, you only think about one thing, you only look at one place, and your total concentration is on one thing. What is that one thing? It's on the finish line. And any sprinter who looks across at the another lane, has lost. Because I'm old, I can remember way back to Montreal, I think it was, in the 100, when Carl Lewis was up against Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson was dirty, he was on steroids. Of course, it turned out later that Carl Lewis was too, but his got hidden. Ben Johnson was much faster than Carl Lewis, and there were the images on TV of Lewis continually glancing across the lane. And Johnson was way ahead. The thing that was just so incredible was watching the, the, uh, the sprints, the, the, the men's and women's 100 and 200. And the women's 100 was won by a, a shock, a, a, a gal who only got into the final by being one of the fastest non-automatic qualifiers, and started in lane nine on the outside. She couldn't look at anybody. She's five foot one tall. The favorite, uh, her name is uh, Shikari Richardson. No. Oh, God, I kind of forgot. The favorite was the Jamaican gal who's a big, strong runner. This pint-sized girl in, in lane nine, you could see she was thinking about nothing else. And one by hundred with a second. There is that focus. If there is to be more of Jesus and less of us, we have to be focused on him. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the beginner and author of our faith. By the way, the contrast was the marathon. Now, it's not inherent in the marathon that you've got time to look back. There were three Ethiopian girls in the first, four actually, in the lead bunch. And three of them broke away. Did any, am I the only one that's watched it? No. Three of them broke away. And then about 8K from the finish, quite early, one of them broke away from... They'd actually dropped one off, and one of them broke away from the other one. But you could tell she was not confident that she hadn't gone too early. And she was constantly not only looking at her watch to check her pace, but constantly looking around to see where the second girl was. 
Now, she won the race and won it quite handily, 30 seconds. The point that I'm making is that if we glance around, if we take our eye off the prize, our eye off Christ, if we're glancing around at other people, where are other people at? Not only does it slow us down, it's actually it's an indication of how our insecurity and is likely actually to cause us to be more likely to fail. And Paul uses that image. So I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved, and it, it, he had not achieved perfection, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Now he's, he is using the, the exaggeration of the athletic image. Yes, we never forget who we are, what we are, both without and with Christ. We don't forget where we've come from, but for there to be more of Jesus and less of me, we need to focus more on what lies ahead, the goal, the prize, the Lord who's calling us forward, not on back, not on the broken, eventful experiences that so many of us here have experienced. Yes, we can be like bus drivers and always be checking on the rear vision mirror, mainly the left one, because you go off the road in a bus and it's a pretty big deal. But we actually spend more time searching and scanning ahead than looking in the rearview mirror, because we've got to get our passengers there safely. And if we want to win the prize, we've got to focus on him. Because, you see, our story doesn't end with where we began. Our story, the sum and essence of our story is not where we've come from. That's the beginning of the story. The greater part of our story is where we're going and what we look like and what we act like and, and what reputa- what we show of what Jesus has done and is doing and will do in our lives. Because if we are really with Jesus today, none of us are the people we once were. And we do that to the glory of Christ. Amen.